before before I introduce you. I um, use a transcription like uh, app, right? Like goes through and it kind of like lets you edit, you know, your text, right? It's refusing to transcribe some of the things I'm saying lately. And I like, I don't know what to do with that. Like it kind of freaks me out a little wow. bit. Uh, like, I, I mean, it could just be a glitch. Like there are sometimes errors. I'm sometimes unintelligible, you know, famously, but like, isn't that crazy? Like what am I going to do if I can't use everyday applications to uh, conduct my podcasting business? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe you'll have to, I, I don't know. You could create your own. You have to jailbreak <laughs> the, you know, transcription AI, basically. Um, I don't Ooh. know. That's, yeah. I mean, that, that's a that's a challenge, right? I have a little thing like that, too. And it's really useful, right? So to be attacked by your own transcription service, that's... It's an affront. I sub- submitted a, a bug ticket. We'll see how that <laughs> see how that all plays out for me. But no, you're totally uh, you're totally right. I think maybe I'll have to go back to like old school tape splicing because, as you said, that like I did use to splice film. I was a I was a projectionist once upon a time. It was a technical skill I had. Maybe I go back to like razor blades and like just tape, and I just get up in there and do some like uh, music concrete, like experimental style cut up. Like while I'm at it, <laughs> I like that. It's very nineties. Totally. Very, very 90s. Um, Let me just pause for a second. I want to introduce my esteemed guest this evening. Uh, Someone who I'm thrilled. Once again, I get super excited when this guest comes. I feel like I need to take a chill pill, which I don't advocate for or have. So we'll see how this all plays out. But this guest has joined me before to uh, some great acclaim and I guess I'd say controversy also. It was a lot of fun. It's someone who I admire, who I like respect Deeply, who many of us really, you know, look up to. Um, I don't know. Uh, you're an icon and an OG, and I also want to say that you're a man of intellect and taste, my friend. And I think that that comes through in a, like a way that's like sets you apart from some of the other like right wing poster dude bros on the internet who have things to say. Uh, you are almost kind of like a personal BAP. Is that weird? Maybe I shouldn't say that. But I'm joined this evening by the one and only. My Fitness Feelings, welcome back to Here Comes the Backlash. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was, uh, you're, you're too kind. Uh, it's, it's an honor to be here. I'm, I'm really excited too. You could just say that, that that was a lot and like leave, honestly, if you want to. I hope you don't. I hope you don't. Um, no, but seriously, it's, it is great to have you here because it was uh, a lot of fun. You came on before. You had a great discussion with uh, me. It really kind of taught me a lot of things, honestly, that I didn't know about uh occultism a little bit maybe 20th century some of the underlying currents behind things like michael hoffman's revelation of the method Uh, it was very engaging people loved it it still i think is one of the top episodes on this feed to this day it is riveting but some people didn't like it by the way producers note i call my fitness feelings fits it's just like my my little name i I think i think other people use it now too so i don't know uh fits like we have a little bit of controversy. Was it why? What was what were people mad about? Do you remember that? I, I do remember it. And I, I wasn't totally well, first of all, the people <laughs> a lot of the people blocked me immediately. So it yeah. was hard for me to tell what even what I was kicked out of several conspiracy group chats over that episode. Oof. I don't really participate in group chats very often, so it, it was not really much of a loss. Uh, and I really didn't like those people anyway. But having said that, I think it was 
I think the conspiracy scene doesn't like a lot of the Hoffman stuff and they, they pretend and they put on this big show of, oh, it's he's an anti-Semite and a Nazi and all, all these things. Right. To me, I think what it's it's more about is that the his revelation of the method idea more or less casts their whole project as kind of being not just worthless, but actually actively harmful, right? Like Hoffman's mm. sort of thought of as a conspiracy theorist, but a lot of what he's doing is is critiquing conspiracy mm. research. Mm-hmm. So, and so he's he's you know he's a little bit of both, right? And I think those people don't like that because essentially for them, what this stuff is is a hobby, right? Mm. Where they read old books, and and I'm not saying they don't discover some true things or some interesting things because they definitely do. But what effect is that really having beyond? demoralizing the population and convincing them that a bunch of these people are already kind of totally in control. It's not clear to me what, what kind of grounds, what kind of ground they're gaining basically um, with that project. So I think they don't mm-hmm. like Hoffman for that reason. And that's why they didn't like the podcast. Cause really the episode just kind of uh, showed a different side of conspiracy research. that I think they're not comfortable with. 100%. I was going to call them losers and cowards, but that was much more eloquent. So I plus one, all of that. And I think, honestly, Fitz, I think it was a little bit of using Hoffman as a smear against us because we were talking about Hoffman and you're right. We talked about it, I think, in kind of different ways. And you, I think, were fantastic. Obviously, the show is fantastic. And so they hate that. They don't like people who are like, good at things and having fun and maybe like just cool and like chill people. They can't deal with that because they want everyone to be in a state of perpetual misery. And so I think there's a little bit of that. Like, honestly, like it felt so weird. It felt like it's just so out of left field because we didn't even touch on any of like the supposed anti-Semitic Hoffman-esque things. We may touch on some of those tonight, but it was just, it was a really weird thing. So like, yeah, the con leftists, I'm sorry, but they just, you're, you're totally right. The project, it, it, there is nothing wrong with them as people. I like uh, con leftists as people. I like uh, some of the stuff that they do turn up, but you are right in the sense that it is a hobby. And that's not necessarily to say I'm not obviously a, a hobbyist here too, but I, I took to heart like a lot of the things that you were saying that like that night uh, and reminded me of that uh, Hoffman has said about perils of the conspiracy researcher and like the ability to kind of blackpill uh, people kind of unwittingly almost through this type of research. And so um, I appreciate you for for joining me that night. Uh, creating such a, a, a firestorm. Um, and I want to uh, say now you're a kind of entering maybe a little bit into the field of research commentary or conspiracy commentary yourself, I guess, in a way. Um, you launched a sub stack recently. Um, do you want to tell me just a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I really, I started it just because I, I used to try to write longer threads directly on Twitter, and I really liked doing that. The problem, I found that the format was becoming a little limiting and that on Twitter, the timing, you know, is so important. Like if you spend a lot of time on a big thread, but it's just, even if it's really good, right? If it's timed poorly, no one will ever see it. And mm-hmm. so I decided, I was like, you know what? I want to make a little bit more of an effort just to pro- produce some content that is just a slightly longer form. And so that's kind of why I've been doing it. And I'm, I'm going to use it to talk about some conspiracy stuff, some stuff related to Gerard. I have a few things in the works. Um, that I think people are gonna I think will be very interesting for people that if you're you know if you're a listener uh either a follower of mine or you're into you know, into this podcast there will definitely be I think some uh some cool stuff 
No, if you're not following fitness feelings, my fitness feelings for some reason by now, like get your life together, people. But you you probably are. You may not have seen his Substack though, just because frankly, Substacks are very hard to promote on X.com. I've found it's one of the most difficult links I think to share on Indeed. the platform. Um, so I think it's important to talk about. I want to say like you did, you wrote this piece. I know there's, uh, I think a couple of pieces up. I've read one for sure in my research and I will catch up on the other one because on the omnipresence of conspiracies uh was written by fitz it is i don't know like a state of the union almost of conspiracy theory in a way it's really great it's a it's a history it's a it's a critique um and i think you have a really great style of writing uh fitz it's really it's intelligent but it's accessible as well like you write in a very clear manner and i think that's important i think a lot of people in this lane tend to either be like retards or it's like too self-important and like like me basically just cannot like finish a sentence and so uh, i just really appreciate it i really insur- uh, encourage you know people to check this check out Fitz's Substack. thank you yeah i hope people do too i uh i think the challenge with internet writing is because you're not you don't have an editor really and you don't have technically you don't have you know a character limit or anything i think sometimes people i i it's hard to get things to sort of get to get a, it's harder, I think, to get an essay to feel uh, the kind of charge or something that you can get when you almost have like, when something, I don't know how to say this, when it's almost like your piece uh, is kind of the, he's like just the right length. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. I notice sometimes people really struggle with that. I will say I struggle with it myself. Um, and so it's something I'm, I try to be very conscious of is to not, be too not to like say too little but also not to kind of like you know give myself too much license to kind of just drone on and on which is something i hate sometimes about sometimes bloggers like that's a weakness that they will have is that you know they just kind of love (laughs) yeah yeah. Um, you have to keep it yeah keep it tight right keep it tight yes you nailed it. The way that you just described that was so perfect because I think that is exactly how I describe it. Uh, it's very, it's considered, it's very intelligent. Obviously, uh, it's coming from the, the brilliant fits, but it's also like readable. Like it really is easy to approach. It doesn't uh, kind of put you off in a, in a sense. And so I did really appreciate that. Please continue. I have no doubt that you have uh, many, many a topic brewing in that uh, mighty brain of yours. So yeah, again, it is a reason and insanity. I almost said insanity, which would be my substance. I guess really. I, I, I kind of like that. It, I sort of uh, I like that if you say it too quickly, it kind of sounds like insanity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a thin line, you know. In, indeed, indeed. Um, so Fitz, I and asked you back, I guess, just kind of going off of this notion of the fact that we did cause a little bit of firestorm last time you were here. Really, I kind of just was like, how can we double down on that? How can we cause even more problems uh, for ourselves? And not really for ourselves, actually. There was literally no skin off my back. I just closed the computer and put down my phone if it ever got too crazy. But, um, you know, like we caused this like controversy for nothing. It was very annoying to me that uh, I was literally like entrapped into like 
I don't know. There was just it was a very strange uh, moment where like I was accused of like anti-Semitism or Holocaust denialism, um, which I'm only famously, you know, an AIDS denialist. I'm not necessarily a Holocaust denialist. Just want to put that on the record um, until maybe tonight. Who knows? Maybe I'll change my mind. Um, but it was weird to just be kind of accused of these things because I because we talked about an author on a podcast. It was so ridiculous. And yes, I am familiar that with the fact that Hoffman's called uh, a Holocaust denier or anti-Semite, but I've also read his work and I know what he is and what he isn't, you know what I mean? And so it was surprising because the allegations felt thin to me. Uh, He doesn't even go into Holocaust stuff really that much in his kind of like famous books on Judaism. Um, But Michael Hoffman is, you know, this kind of controversial conspiracy critic is a good way to describe him, who we talked about last time uh, to some degree. He has written on these topics. And um, yeah, I guess just to set this up, I'm not going to bend over backwards a lot to be like, oh, I'm not an anti-Semite, blah, 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 like whatever. Like, because why? Because we've already been smeared as that. So I'm not going to try to really uh, protect myself or show myself in that way. I, I don't care. I don't even believe anti-Semitism is real at this point. It feels like a big psyop. But I will say that, like, none of this is about individual people. Like, I just I don't approach any kind of person on, uh, on a level like that. You know, I'm not thinking about their individual identity markers. I'm not a leftist. That doesn't really, like, occur to me even in some cases and in others maybe it does. But you evaluate people on their character right and who they are and that's why it just feels so hollow all these attacks on on us to begin with and now everyone now everyone's an anti-semite so it feels like the perfect moment to bring you here um i guess i guess where should we start i guess fits what what even is this about like what like what is a jew what, what's going on who are these people that we supposedly hate Right. Well, the irony, of course, of this, you know, whole thing, the whole previous controversy where you were saying you're, you were called a Holocaust and I or an anti-Semite and so forth, is that in that time, right, since that has happened, you know, there's now war in Gaza between the Hamas and the Palestinians and the government of Israel. And all the con left people are pro-Palestine, right? And they are, and according to the Basically, all the Jewish organizations and spokespeople and so forth, essentially, if you deny what Israel's claims are about the war, you are essentially a Holocaust denier and an anti-Semite. So now those same people who were so convinced that, right, essentially they're, they're, they're now in that position. And I think they've probably responded by claiming that Israel or whatever, the, the Israelis are essentially Nazis, right? I, what all this, I think, so I, I'm setting all this up just to say that just like your question about what is what, what does it mean to be Jewish or to be a Jew, what is Judaism, all of these terms have become very unclear at best, right? At the point at which people, you can accuse the Jewish Zionist state that was founded basically in opposition, essentially, right, and as a reaction to World War II and to the Holocaust of being Nazis, the term Nazi has lost all meaning, right? I mean, it just it, that's it's an absurdity. So I just kind of want to put that that out there um, as a connection between point between this discussion and the previous one. So to answer your question, right? So where do we start? I I I've, I've thought about this. I think so. Uh, there's an interesting book. Um, that was, I found it through uh, the Martin Twitter account, but it's, I think it kind of originated with Second City Bureaucrat called The Ordeal of Civility by John Murray uh, Kahati. And 
Kahati, so the book is a kind of a sociological critique of Freud, Marx, and Levi Strauss. And he his point is to argue that these intellectual movements emerged out of this very specific Jewish immigrant context in the 19th and possibly parts of the 20th uh, century, right? And so this, this idea of the or- ordeal of civility, I think, is really critical. And I'm going to, I want to kind of come back to it in a second. But what it means is, so essentially what it means is that there was this time period in Europe um, in the 1800s when, in, particularly in Germany, but all over Europe, there was a large migration of Jews from Eastern Europe coming in, uh, basically being admitted to European countries and integrating into these societies. And, you know, that was, that caused, there was a lot of tension as a result of that. And what the Huddy study is about is basically the pain of that, basically for the Jewish immigrants, specifically for Jewish intellectuals like Freud, right? And the, the idea is that, and so to try to make this more concrete, right, for your, your listeners, imagine like we went to China, to like rural China, and we we found, we went to like the most remote village that like barely had any contact with modernity, right? You just have some people living a very traditional agrarian sort of existence out in the sticks. They they have their own language, they're uncustomed, they're, compl- they're very bright people, but basically there's very little privacy, uh, very little, they're extremely poor, and all of a sudden we just ship them off and put them in the middle of like Tokyo or something, right? And all, now they have to cope with basically living as a part of this incredibly, um, this really what is a far more advanced culture in many ways, like Japanese culture. It's so sophisticated, so uh, so much differentiation. There's so many different codes and rules and procedures and ways of speaking and ways of addressing people and ways you're supposed to do every, basically, civility rules, in mm. essence, that govern every aspect of people's conduct. And so his thesis is that for these uh, Jewish intellectuals, it was a very painful experience to be basically to be kind of like the representatives of this traditional modernizing or pre-modern culture in modern Europe. And that a number of ideologies, like I mentioned, uh, psychoanalysis, Marxism, structuralism, and also Zionism emerged um, out of this context. So I kind of wanted to just set that up because I think that's very going to be very important in terms of understanding your question, which is like, okay, what what, is, what are we even talking about here, right? With what is Judaism? Um, so it's the the basic, the mainstream answer to that question, which if we were like asked someone from Israel, what they would tell us is that the Jews are basically a group of people, the same group of people that are referred to in the Old Testament, the descendants of Abraham, who you know, we're living their lives, whatever, in the Middle East, as described in the Old Testament. And basically, they they went through a bunch of stuff. And eventually, the Second Temple was destroyed, and they were exiled from their homeland, Canaan, I think at the time, now Palestine. And they were basically forced out into the world to, like, wander around forever. But they were, and, and they're this kind of singular group that scattered to the winds all over the place. But they're kind of always been this destiny that they need to come back together in their ancestral homeland. That's kind of the Zionist idea. Um, I think it's really important to establish that that idea 
is really that's that's a very new concept, right? That what it is mm. to be Jewish is actually um, far far less clear, right? And I mean, we can we can we could approach this in a number of different ways, but there's been basically uh, there's been a number of different attempts to write the history of Judaism, and it was not really until very recently that this concept of the Jews as a kind of singular ethnic people or like a nation emerged, right? That earlier mm -hmm. histories of Judaism, and I could talk more about this if you would like, tended to emphasize that basically Judaism was just a kind of diverse set of communities who shared common religious practices, but were not necessarily like a single uh a single, you know, nation, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the way that we kind of think about them, we kind of think about them now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Almost like, um, I guess, in a way, Hinduism, the way we think of it now is, uh, in a sense, the same, where it's really, there's a common set of values maybe, but it's also really like hundreds and thousands or whatever uh, cults or religions. Uh, in this case, I guess, what you're getting to at, I guess, to me, is um, this idea of, the Jews as an idea or as a notion or thought, their influence on these different uh, ideologies and movements in the in history, um, the fact that it can change over time, uh, it gets to this idea of, to me, that it's an ideological race or a, a kind of a, a construct or a, a nation that's kind of bound by something that's like less tangible than even the religion that they practice or the blood that they share. Um, does, does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, I think, right, it does. I mean, so, like, to give you a sense of it, right, like, the first guy who tried to write, like, a history of Judaism was the, uh, the first modern history of Judaism was this guy Jacques uh, Basneg or something. He was a Protestant. And um, the main issue, so, and then it, it, he was a Protestant. And he, he basically, you know, he kind of was writing this history basically gets to attack in the context of attacking the Catholic church and, you know, whatever. And then he was followed by this guy, uh, Jost, Isaac Marcus Jost, who was Jewish. And this is the, it, it, he attempted, it was a very unpopular work, historically speaking, but he attempted to write this history of Judaism and the Jewish people. And he doesn't even address the biblical period, right? And so one of the key things in terms of talking about Judaism and, and it put it in the context of Hoffman, is the, the relationship of Judaism basically to its, it, its text. So, that it, so that on the one hand, you have the issue of like, okay, are, is Judaism a people? Is it like a single ethnicity? Is it a collection of ethnicities? You know, uh, what's going on with that? And then you have this idea of like, from a textual perspective, what is it? Like, is it the Torah? Is it the Talmud? Is it the Old Testament? And there's conflicting views about that, I guess. But it's pretty clear that Hoffman argues, I think quite strongly, that, you know, the Talmud really is the, the textual heart of the Jewish religion, right? Mm -hmm. He calls it Judaic, right? Because he doesn't think it's actually... The, the the Judaism of the of the Old Testament. Okay, right, I, right. Have, I have no idea if that's actually true or not, but it, it, he could be right. But I think there's a lot of different pieces there that we could talk about and that are definitely complicated and and, and relevant. They are complicated, and I was thinking as you're describing this that it's uh, everything's riddled. Uh, 
within this topic, everything's riddled with like contradictions, right? There's a, a, many confounding factors. And so it's like race, religion, race and religion, uh, not either of those things. There's a lot of these kind of um, contradictions that goes along with the text piece as well, because it's always shifting, right? It's the Talmud, but no, it's not the Talmud. No one reads the Talmud. It's the Torah. It's, is it maybe a little bit of the Zohar? Is the, the mystical influence really shaping it? Uh, it seems like the thought of what even Judaism is has shifted quite a bit over time. I mean, there's like really thousands of texts when you kind of refer to text. It's almost with that with that many texts, it's almost hard for it to even be based on anything. It's like this state of information overload almost where it kind yes. of like negates the entire thing. And then added to that, like you talk about Jews, but many Jews are not practicing at all and don't, you know, even know the first thing. I know many Jews who don't know the first thing about Judaism whatsoever, you know? Uh, and I'll just, I'll add one more contradiction or abstraction. Is it true? Like most of the texts weren't even written down until like the first century. Like it was an oral tradition, uh, like until the temple, I think was destroyed. I just feel like a lot of these texts are uh, documents, but they're not necessarily representative uh, to your point of the biblical tradition that's associated with uh, with Judaism. Yes, it is a very complicated situation. I think what you're referring to is that the Babylonian Talmud, which I which Hoffman at least mm. alleges is the more authoritative Talmud, is a is basically when they wrote down the oral tradition of the elders or what was allegedly the oral tradition of the mm. elders. Um yes, and that's also an issue with the Old Testament. I think an interesting thing so I'm not a, like I'm not a scholar of Judaism and I don't you know I'm not, I don't want to present myself that way I'm just a kind of independent researcher basically who finds these questions interesting uh, very much as you do but there is there's an interesting book actually friend of uh, this podcast David M recommended it to me uh, called the invention of the Jewish people by Shlomo Sand and it was a very controversial he's an Israeli historian it was I think first written in Hebrew. And it's a very it was a very controversial book, but one of the things I would definitely want to like impart is that he does a really good job of tracing how you basically get basically from the kind of beginning of modernity to the end, how the concept that we have of Judaism today um and the Jewish people as a kind of nation that's flung all over the world is something that emerged in response to um, the growth and expansion of European nationalism, right? So like, so one of the, one of the allegations that you will often get from people who either are anti-Semites or who are just being accused of being anti-Semites, right? But people who are, you know, critical, let's say in any way of Judaism, they're, they're often the people who are like, oh, Judaism, there's no such thing as Judeo-Christianity. You know, the, 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 the Jews don't like the Old Testament. They don't care about the Old Testament. You know, it's all about the Talmud and these other texts, right? And they, that's just a cover. I think, I mean, in a way that might be true, but I think the Sand book does a good job of showing how that's actually, that's only part of the story, right? So one of the interesting things about the relationship of the, uh, the Old Testament to contemporary Judaism and to Zionism is that like when you think about these these early historians uh, of the Jewish religion, basically just ex because they were either Christian or, you know, whatever, they uh, they accepted basically the Old Testament narrative, right? Like all the events that supposedly happened in the Old Testament just as fact, right? They just did not question them. Um 
And then over time, what happened is people started various analysis of the Old Testament occurred and uh, different things. And it became harder. There's a guy, Wellhausen, I think. It became clearer that like the texts of the Old Testament maybe weren't actually written at the time in which the events allegedly took place, that they were written afterwards and they were maybe not as a historical record as opposed to a sacred text as authoritative as we might think, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what happened basically a lot of, for example, contemporary, uh, like the contemporary Zionist movement, for example, they, they're, they're actually very into the Old Testament, not as a sacred text, but as proof Judaism and the Jewish people were kind of like the original race, right? And there's that it's like a record of how their civilization basically predates everything and was sort of the original national unity and structure that uh, Europe would then base itself on, right? And they're, um, I think, I'm just saying what his name is. Yeah, this is a, a recent guy. Uh, Bear, right? Who's a very famous histor uh kind of um, pro-Israeli, whatever Israeli historian, and he basically says this specifically: like Jewish Judaism is kind of in that way uh, is like kind of the sacred model for European civilization, and the proof of that is the Old Testament. So it's a little bit more complicated than just like they reject the Old Testament; they reject it as a sacred text, right? Like they don't really treat it as like a religious text. But they they do take it very seriously and basically as proof, right, of the claims. Uh, let's put it like this: they they make two claims about Judaism now, I think, which are somewhat suspects, right? And one is that all the stuff in the Old Testament happened exactly as that we're told, right? And the people who call themselves Jews today are the direct descendants of those people, right? That's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it is this whole thing of like exile, that this sand, this historian is very complicated. The idea like, okay, did Judaism, you know, was there this exile after the fall of the second temple where this group of people got forced out into the world and, you know, like, did that really happen, right? And I think, when we could discuss this, it's like both of those things are pretty complicated. And I think he, it's basically like, not really. Like they, it's like, uh, I think it may be more of a myth really than anything else. a button for like Fitz blows my mind button i pressed it six times while you were speaking um i first i just want to point this out this kind of uh connection that kind of started to pick up on the uh, i think you'll, you'll probably come back to it this uh connection between nation building or the the root of like na nationalism the root of kind of the idea of the modern nation state being associated with uh, zionism or or this this Jewish tradition, uh, and you were you're earlier speaking about civility, which I think there, there's probably imagine some kind of connection there between this relationship. Whoever these people are, I guess that we were calling the Jews at any point, uh, being associated with kind of um, it's hard to describe like civil civil rights, you know. So it's this kind of like uh, 
community building. And it seems to be, I guess, rooted somewhat in Zionism, I, I think you were saying. And I know maybe it would be helpful to uh, like, what what is, what is Zionism? I'm, I'm almost afraid to ask because it's like, <laughs> I try to stay out of the whole Middle East thing. I don't even know what side it is, but it sounds Jewish. Yeah. So, I mean, Zionism <laughs> is, and, and to, to be very clear, right? Like, I don't know, have a percentage, but I think certainly all Jews are not Zionist, and I would say probably most are not. And frankly, even a lot of these, it really, like most of the nationalist Jewish historians who did this work basically kind of recasting, you know, basically inventing a kind of singular Jewish, like what's at stake here is basically the idea of a singular people, right, uh, right, that it was descended from Abraham versus like a rich and diverse religious civilization made up of a whole bunch of different ethnic groups that had basically survived despite persecution, right? The latter is tend to be where I tend to fall, and this historian San does as well. Um, but Zionism, so Zionism was a movement. I mean, the whole idea of Zionism is basically that. It's not so it includes everything we have been talking about, but it's also that basically the Jews need to return to have a kind of sacred destiny of returning to their homeland in the end times and being reunited with their homeland. Right. Will basically like heal the world and like heal them. And it represents this like incredibly significant, basically political and spiritual goal for both them and for like the entire world, right? And it's all about, they have to get the Jews back to Israel and to and, and in control of Israel. And there's something about, it's, you know, the whole mm. thing, right? So it's not just enough to live kind of in exile and fit into these communities or whatever. We need to go back and have our own community and have our own area that has to be Jerusalem that we control. But that's what Zionism is basically all about. Just to make one further point about it, it similar to like, how do I say this? That ordeal of civility thing, right? Like Kahati makes this point that, for example, like a lot of like that Freud, for example, developed a lot of his ideas are, are really just like juxtaposing or like transposing the kind of immigrant experience onto the human mind, right? In, in certain ways. And there was a, there was a kind of feeling feeling of alienation or inferiority that these uh, people like Freud had living in Europe as kind of as second class citizens, basically, and that in response to that they developed these various ideologies. And Zionism is one of those ideologies. So it's imagine you're uh, a wealthy, intelligent kind of Jewish person living in Germany or whatever, but you're still not really you can't really rise all the way to the top. You're still looked down on as a Jew because of basically social codes and prejudice and, you know, whatever was going on at the time. And so what Zionism was can be, can be understood as kind of a response to that. It's like, actually, no, we're the original civilization, right? Like Europe is based on us, you know, it's, it's, it's positing, uh, positing Judaism as kind of the original historical uh, model, which then kind of establishes its superiority over these European civilizations that were viewed as oppressors or whatever. Okay, again, I'm going to hit the button uh, 600 more times. You said something about this project, almost about um, 
uh, am- ambition to heal the world. And I would, I don't want to take us too far afield, but I would direct uh, maybe people back to an earlier episode uh, I did with episode 40 with Jin the Ninja. He was talking about Lurianic Kabbalah and a similar ambition uh, that is held there. I think there is kind of almost this like mystical idea to this. Uh, I transpose oh, the values, you know, of this projection almost you could say of like, or manifestation of your values across like wherever you go. Like you can remold the world it's fascinating uh and it makes me almost see zionism as a as a magical project almost in a, in a sense you know it certainly does have uh the ability to you know manifest results you know <laughs> sure well and that's a very agnostic idea right the idea of like the exiled god mm. returning to creation right or you know like i mean that jacob bohm i mean all of his stuff is about he's not technically agnostic but he was a christian kabbalist but anyway that uh, concept of the kind of yeah that we you have to that man has to fall and be exiled from the absolute from god from divinity and then rise up and return to divinity and it's that it's that return to the original state but in a transformed way that basically completes everything right and it's so it's a similar deal right like the return to zion is kind of very much along those lines what it suggests to me is that there is something that is called a jew or a jewish person i guess that is elusive and it's still mysterious to me at this point but there is uh almost it seems uh, this is gonna sound so schizo but a people who have like a, a, a different view of the world there is this ideology but it's a it's an occulted ideology i think in some ways that what uh what it's maybe even really about at, at its core what, whatever it is uh and again not implicating all jews i'm saying that there is this jew factor this strange elusive uh idea of jews and they do seem to have a, a certain um perspective of the world that they aren't sharing i think it's reflected in things like the persistent oral tradition and uh and, and i think in a, in a variety of ways uh and in the denial of basic um realities of the fact that they even wield any power in the world at all um, it's 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 strange i don't know what to exactly make of it or if that even really made sense to you fits but it is uh there is a there is a jew i think that's what i've learned so far <laughs> yeah well of course i mean it, it, i mean I, I, yeah again it's not really my point it I, yeah <laughs> i'm joking I think, i'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, no i mean but it's like i think a way to think about it is that this is really that sand guy's argument that they made it much clearer for me is that basically like you is basically that when you when you go back right when you go back to very old times right like go back to the ancient middle east when all the stuff was happening uh, the a point that he makes i think that is like really important is is that basically the the history Judaism has of itself, right? And Judaism cares a lot about the past and a lot about its own sacred history. It's it's always been very concerned with that. But if you think about what it's based on, you know, and this is not unique to Judaism. Judaism, like you could say this about a, maybe every religion, right? It's like its own sacred history. It's like okay, did that really happen the way everyone believes, right? So like in the case of the idea of were the Jews as a single population group exiled from their home? I mean, the answer to that is just no, they weren't, right? That doesn't make any sense. Like, and it, it, there's been a lot of historical work on this, you know, and like, uh, it, first of all, I mean, the Romans and the Assyrians and all those people, they did not deport entire populations. It was not possible to do that in those days. They didn't have logistics and, uh, 
They didn't have the ability to just immediately resettle the, the vast tracts of farmland that would have been left unoccupied and people would have starved. I mean, it just things like that just didn't really happen, right? That's kind of the first issue. And then the second issue is that um, uh, with regards to the whole thing of the, the exile, right, is that a lot of the sources at that time used this word galut, G-A-L-U-T, um, and that's translated as exile, like when we were exiled from Babylon, exiled uh, after the fall of the Second Temple. But uh, there's a lot of arguments that that doesn't really mean exile at the time. It meant something just more like subjugation or oppression. So very likely in these scenarios that the Jews might have been sub- oppressed by the Assyrians or by the Babylonians or whatever – uh, by their conquerors, and they might have been murdered and abused in various ways, but they probably weren't exiled in their totality. Probably didn't even mean that, right? Um, and then the other problem is that even at this time, it's pretty clear that there were huge Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean Sea. Like there probably were about four million Jews, and so it's like, how would like a few thousand exiles come to be come to basically be a population of four million people in like a few few generations you know it's just not possible to reproduce that quickly um and so the 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 thing here that, that sand brings up that i think is very interesting is the idea that back in the days when christianity was forming itself judaism is going very strong is that judaism was a proselytizing religion much like uh was much like Islam and Christianity mm. are today. They they sought converts. Mm. And so the whole idea is that today we have this whole spectrum of people who, ide- who are members of the Jewish faith, right? And it's basically just that these people are the descendants of various groups who converted to Judaism, basically, at different times. And that in Europe, in, in you know, the 18th century, in response to European nationalism, these ideas that they were a single people, was just invented largely out of insecurity and and conflict with the European host countries, right? But it's just and there's there's so many sources like Roman sources from Juvenal, Celsius, Valerius Maximus. There's tons of people who they were always complaining about the Jews converting Roman pagans because it was a very attractive mm. religion to the Romans in some ways. Um, and they, tr- the Jews at the time, they translated a lot of their core texts into Greek, into other languages, right? Uh, there's the Hasmoneans, for example, like forced Judaism on their subjects and their neighbors. Um, there was a really good Uriel Rappaport, who's a pretty famous historian. His PhD thesis in 1965 was about that. He makes this argument very well and very explicitly. And the, the issue was that, bec- so you, you were mentioning this issue of paradoxes, and it's like, these converts wanted to be accepted as real Jews, right? Which has this kind of idea that you've kind of always been a Jew and you can trace your genealogy back to Abraham. And so to be polite, basically, everyone just kind of, they changed their names and like everyone just kind of pretended they had always been Jewish, even though that wasn't really the case, right? And um, so as a result, it's kind of easy to pretend like these conversions never happened, but like it clearly did, right? It clearly did. And that's the reason why You've got all of these different Jewish communities. You know, there's some of them are in the Middle East or in Iraq or in Turkey or Eastern Europe, Spain. You know, that, that's how they ended up all over, right? And I think you know, it really is mm. more of a religious designation than it is uh, a single ethnic designation. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I saw your post today about, uh, I think it was Josephus, uh, about the, basically them trying to, I guess, exterminate the Jews in Damascus. And they the, they couldn't because their wives were like big fans. They were like converting or something. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like absolutely. that was really interesting to me because it's, um, first of all, it's uh, suggests almost like, yeah, it's a very different religion in many ways, clearly, because they, they do not famously proselytized it's hard to become uh, a religious jew nowadays uh if you're not kind of like born into it like it's it, it just is you can do it but it, uh, it requires a lot of steps they don't really go out of their way to recruit new members you know uh so it does seem very interesting uh to me it makes me wonder like what um you, you know what 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 was this religion because again i think even in those times uh a lot of it maybe has been lost you know i don't know i think that uh this leading up to this destruction of the temple it does seem like that was a clearly obviously a significant moment in, in judaism i guess but it almost seems like a schism to me in some ways maybe also because or a break with the past i don't know if that's um off base at all um i mean i don't know if it was a schism i mean there were multiple there was the first time they lost the first temple and they, they lost did. the second temple right it's un- unfortunate but they lost both temples and um yeah i mean i think that they you know I think there's just something about monotheism that lends itself to kind of want to convert people. Because, like, you know, if you believe in, like, multiple gods, right? Like, let's say we each believe in our own individual, you know, we have our own god, but we think there's multiple gods. It's like, okay, well, I have my god, you have your god, like, we're good, you know? But if I think there's only one god, right, and it's mine, and you have a different belief, it kind of suggests that, like, you're wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. said they have one god is that true though do they have other gods because it feels like they maybe also do going back into the idea of what even is this religion do we do we understand it my understanding is there is actually kind of a lot of like mythology i guess you could say or or interpretations of scripture we have you know, of course uh, kabbalism um and other kinds of forms of like jewish mysticism and magic that kind of manifest is Jew- is judaism a monotheistic religion truly Interesting question. I mean, I, I, um, I don't. What would I say that Kabbalism is monotheistic? I'm not really sure. I think that's a matter of interpretation. I mean, I wouldn't say that. I don't. At least I could be totally wrong, but I don't think. To me, Kabbalah does not necessarily mean that there's like multiple gods. Does it even think fair, there fair. is a god? It, uh, yes, in a way, but it's like very complicated and, and really, in some ways, almost beyond the ability. It's like it references something that's almost beyond our ability to capture in language. And so it's very hard to refer to. Um, so yeah, that's, a, that's a good point. And I, I'm not, I mean, Hoffman, right. I think would say that the, the Jewish religion is really just racial self-worship, right. I and mean, he pretty much says that mm-hmm. um, he could be right. You know, I, I'm very into Rene Girard and I think, so I don't, I think that may be true. I don't think that's really unique. I mean, I think that if, if that is true, it's like, that's basically what most 
religion really comes down to. It's just communities of people worshiping their own capacity for violence and mistaking it for divine influence. And I think that's pretty much what the whole thing is. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting question. Is it really a monotheistic religion like the way that Islam or Christianity is? Uh, maybe you could make the case that it's not. And I think the same things apply in some cases to uh, Jewish or Christian mysticism, I guess you could say. Or, But I guess what I was getting at, too, is just this idea that there is other tr- parts of the Jewish tr- tradition that we don't fully know. But I like the, the Kabbalah tradition definitely influences the way that rabbis think about uh, the Torah, the law, their interpretation of the law. A lot of the religion is almost more of a complicated system for getting around things almost it's this weird kind of almost like algorithmic computational uh process that the when you like really start to understand how the law is like written and how all these commentaries kind of work it's a lot of complicated references on top of references uh to arrive at the, this predetermined answer <laughs> no it's just, yeah. it's like it is just kind of just different philosophy right um i mean one thing that's just very interesting about it right i which is that and this is a point Hoffman makes is that, you know, outsiders are not really, you're not really allowed to think about it or question it or look into it too much at all. Like you're just, it's kind of like mm-hmm. off limits, right. In a way that other religions really aren't, you know, like we could have a podcast episode about Hinduism or about Islam and we could be really brutal and like critical. And honestly, like we'd be totally fine. Like not a single mm-hmm. thing would happen. There would be no censorship, like nothing. Right. I mean, we wouldn't even be worried about it. I mean, uh, unless but- we do a Charlie Hebdo or whatever, like, no, <laughs> yeah, no right. pictures, no pictures, but we no can talk, pictures. we could talk, we could talk. Yes. <laughs> but no, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. And that is kind of the root of, of one of the reasons I think it's important just to do this, even if I sometimes accidentally dip into uh, 1488 territory here and there, is because people shouldn't be above uh, criticism. And I think what frustrates people uh, is you, well, first of all, I don't even still, I still couldn't tell you what a Jewish person is if I saw one, right? Because it is complicated. There's all these different types of Jews. Uh, It could mean different things. Most people I actually think like Jews when they actually know what a Jew is. Like we, Jews do kind of own the media. I don't think that's a secret. It used to be very much open secret. They are famously like comedians and celebrities and entertainers. People like those things. So I would actually argue that Americans like Jews for the most part. And so to be told, you know, suddenly that you're anti-Semitic or, you know, hateful of this, this group of people, uh, it, it feels, first of all, yeah, just against the kind of the experience of, of, of what we live, but, um, uh, it's, unfair right i think i get really worked up about things that are are unjust like that because every other group to your point can be criticized you can follow a a research a conspiracy trail for so far as long as it doesn't implicate you know too many jewish people but if you start to kind of accuse uh notorious jews you know of certain crimes or being involved in certain things suddenly the like conversation changes and things become off limits and i just find that all just so frustrating frustrating right um and i and then i still and it like to me as we're discussing this it just kind of only makes me angrier about that idea because it's like how with all these contradictions with all these different aspects uh to judaism that we've discussed so far or to jewish people or the jewish identity like how can anybody is it even possible to just be uniformly against that? I think it is. It's it's contradictory itself. How can I be opposing something that like opposes itself at times? You know. Yeah, it's not really clear. You know, but there's no there's no doubt in my mind that I mean this is not true like in the Middle East, but in in you know Christian and or like secular liberal humanist whatever 
Europe and the United States, yeah, I mean, there is no, there's no, really is no anti-Semitism at all. I mean, it's it's a complete non-issue. Like, what to whatever extent it was an issue in the past, that is clearly over. You know, I mean, after World War II, you know, you just, it's not really possible that changed the landscape so much. I mean, it's just simply not possible to scapegoat Jews the way that you know perhaps Europeans used to do that. You just can't. Uh, I mean, I would like you can't unfairly. You certainly can't unfairly blame them for things that are are not their fault, and you really can't even you know get into things that adjust uh adjust analysis um you're just basically it's almost become a sacred topic that's just off limits a hundred percent um you've mentioned the historical record a few times and it being you know sometimes unreliable i think that's a known thing about history uh is that it's up for interpretation right it's um it's only as good as like i guess the what we know about it you know documents yeah, we have yeah. uh, i feel like every aspect of history not even like history but like things that happened five minutes ago are constantly being uh queered you know like being radically deconstructed by insane leftists left and right they are constantly trying tearing down history like literally melting statues um but there's one aspect of history i feel like you cannot even go into it involves you know some i don't know i guess some numbers and some uh, wooden doors etc cetera, etc cetera. there's this whole realm that is off limits First of all, is, what is historical revisionism? You know, I guess it has this really bad connotation. Uh, Michael Hoffman's, you know, newsletter is famously called, uh, historical, I think it's historical revisionist or historical re- revisionism. Um, it's got this slur. It's like another one of those things like Holocaust denier or, or, or anti-vax. You know, it's a, it's a bad thing to be. But to me, the historical record seems to be re- being revised all the time. Why is this off limits? And is that even justified? Yes. Um, well, I don't think it's justified. I mean, I don't, I think revisionism, I mean, I really am, you know, trying to just approach things as like, okay, what is, what are the facts? Like, what is the truth? Right. I think that's the most productive way to look at it. And so uh, to me, yeah, if it's, I'm in favor of revisionism that is grounded in some kind of real evidence or whatever. And obviously revisionism that isn't, uh, you know, should be rejected. I, but I think it's not, you know, it, it, the, it's similar to the label conspiracy theory. It's just, it's a kind of, yeah, it's like a term that's attached to things that challenge the kind of, you know, post-World War II moral order, moral global order. Um, you know, it's not really mm-hmm. an objective, meaningful term. It's a way to shut down debate and, and discussion, I think. It's interesting uh, that, um, you know, global order that really is kind of, I feel like Zionism had a lot to do with the foundation, not just of Israel, but of things like uh, the United Nations. And so I just think there's things like Nuremberg, right? We have like this whole uh, idea of Nuremberg as this sacred ground. Uh, But I also feel like a lot of our history is based off of maybe like one or two accounts almost when it comes down to it. Uh, I'm not saying that like... The Holocaust didn't happen. I, I would never suggest that. But there is this monopoly monopolization. You know, I think there's I think I will say that I think there's some questions that could be asked about certain aspects of it. Right. And it's um, I don't know. To me, it just seems it's politically convenient. Right. It's, it just feels like a smokescreen or this kind of like a bludgeon or weapon that's used more politically than anything else. It's, it's a way of getting debate or, or questions uh, shut down. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good point. I think what I would say is something like, so we all have a sense. I think we all basically have a sense 
uh, intuitively and just from experience that history tends to be written by the victors, right? And, you know, the people who win wars demonize their opponents, right? I, I would be shocked if that's ever not happened, right? If, it, if the person, the victor in some conflict has not exaggerated in some way the crimes of its defeated enemy, which is not to say that there no, no crimes were committed, right? Uh, but so it, let's just say hypothetically, if the story about World War II, right, in all of its dimensions is complete, the mainstream version of that is 100% undeniably that is the truth, right? Then that would be, you know, I would be su a surprising example of a time in which the victor of a conflict accurately portrayed its opponent's behavior. That's a rare thing, I think. So I think that's one way to just sort of like consider all of the all of the kind of information. The other thing about it um, is just is that uh, without getting into you know all, whatever all the kind of details of it is that clearly there is um, yeah I mean there's significant debate about it and um, I mean like just the th so I mean there's there's a few interesting like facts right one thing I think that would be good f just for people just to think about would be that the a lot of the claims that um, a lot of the claims about the Nazis in World War II, it's it's good to note that you know the Nazis did persecute the Jews. It's un undeniable that they did, right? So knowing that, but but you know one of the reasons why, well, but it, the fact that they were so openly anti-Jewish obviously makes them very vulnerable to extraordinary claims right mm. i remember in school i was taught that the nazis made like soap and lampshades out of like the skin mm -hmm. of people in concentration camps right that they made like furniture out of the bodies of like holocaust victims i mean i don't that didn't happen i'm like pretty sure that i didn't, I, I don't even hear that claim anymore right mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so i think things like that and particularly because the 20th century was unbelievably bloody and destructive on almost all sides. I mean, World War One was fucking horrible. Then you've got the Soviet Union, which was a complete disaster. I mean, they killed way more people, uh, even than the six million figure, right? I mean, I think mm -hmm. they killed something mm -hmm. like 10 million people, uh, Christians and so forth, right? And dissidents, in addition to the people that they starved. Uh, and then you've got a whole host of other genocides that the you know, the Turkish uh, Armenian thing. You've got that CIA backed anti-communist one in like Myanmar that killed like 5 million people or something, 2 million people. I mean, there, there's, the, there's a lot of really bad stuff happened. And so, you know, to try to make one of those things seem like it is the singular worst, absolute, like whatever, you know, it, um, it isn't shocking to think that maybe there would be some embellishment, right? To try to be like, actually our enemy, the people that we defeated, they were far and away, overwhelmingly, they committed, the, they did the worst things in this really very competitive field of atrocities, you know? I mean, the United States is founded 
on just like the graves of civilization of Native American civilizations that we genocided. You know, I mean, that's just mm-hmm. no one even pretends that's not true, right? Um, uh, mm-hmm. So you know, I think yeah, it's just good to bear that in mind, right? Like, uh, like, um, can we really trust ourselves as like the most accurate? you know, the most accurate narrator and accounter of who the worst people of the 20th century were, you know? Exactly. Can we trust ourselves? Maybe not. Can we trust ourselves and the Jews? No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I shouldn't have said that. But no, you're, you made a million really excellent points that I just undermined it with that joke. But I feel like you you made a credible case for why there's reason to ask questions. And I think that's completely fair. The... the Think of all the propaganda we see from like Ukraine, you know, that happened in the, the beginning of that war. Uh, if people remember the war in Iraq, like the propaganda around that particular uh, episode uh, today in the current conflict, you know, just think about that and then just like apply that. That's in your history book. That's like it's the victors aren't just like victors. They're propagandists. You know, they're going to write the history in a certain way. And again, it's not to suggest that it's completely fabricated. Of course, the Jews were persecuted. Um, but you did mention things like other atrocities of the 20th century. Um, and again, not to go full like David Duke, but like the Bolshevik, Bolshevik revolution. There's associations, you know, with with Zionism or like there <laughs> there is a connection there. And I think a lot of the fascism really I mean, what the Nazis, I guess, would tell you, if you were to ask a Nazi, they would probably say a lot of this was a response to uh, political movements like Bolshevism, uh, things like the Weimar Republic, where you had a lot of like decadence, right? You had a lot of degeneracy, uh, a lot of the things that um, provoke reaction, right, to people who are more traditional. And so I think there is more to the story. It's not to justify it. But I think if you start to put it into place with things like the atrocities in Russia, where people were like butchered in their homes, and it was brutal. I think I've heard it was like 20 million. I'm going to say it was 50 million, in fact, because I hate communists. So it was like 50 million people died there against just like just just the 6 million. I just, you know what I'm saying? It, the there. Tragedy is tragedy, but to magnify one particular tragedy and place it above all others and then use it as this just weapon kind of to just get your uh, way. And uh, it's not just not to blame Jews. This is like all liberals in the left. This is a shibboleth for the left. In fact, you know, it kind of is the underpinning of the liberal world order for the post-war century. And I think it it needs to be attacked and undermined for that reason, because at the end of the day, it's a, a big stepping stone for NATO. It's a big uh, just weapon that they can use to kind of bully bully the uh, the world. Yeah, I think what you're getting at there, right? So it functions as this kind of like the position seems to, on its face, oppose violence, right? Like, oh god, like this is the worst atrocity that's ever happened. We can never let this anything like this happen again. So we need to go around killing and bombing people, right? It's, it, it actually promotes and justifies essentially more violence, right? I mean, what is NATO? It's a giant military alliance. I mean, what does the United States do? We we fly around the world bombing people back into the uh, you know fiat currency system for mm-hmm. basically that's what we do. So yeah, I mean, it's are those as bad as? concentration camps like okay i don't know probably not but um you know it's yes it's like it's important to and this is a point that finkelstein makes a lot which is i think a very good point Mm. which is that something can be legitimately horrific and legitimately tragic right and and, but 
a monument to suffering like that often is just used to justify more suffering and more atrocities, which is not a good thing. Mm. Well said, well said. And thank you for uh, mentioning uh, Finkelstein. Have you found this? A lot of the critics of... Um, not like Holocaust denialism, although there are some of them too, but many critics of uh, of Zionism, of Judaism, uh, historical revisionists, a lot of them are Jewish. It's it's really interesting uh, to see that kind of uh, dichotomy and, and to see like Finkelstein, for example, being called an anti-Semite. But I guess anyone who opposes uh, anti or is anti-Zionist is an anti-Semite, I suppose. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I saw a thing, a clip just on the TL right, right before I logged on of some, like, I don't know, who is that Harvard uh, professor who was like always hanging out with Epstein and he's like a famous defense lawyer? Oh, Dershowitz. 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 Oh, my God. Dershowitz calling <laughs> Obama an anti-Semite, okay? I mean, it, it's, it's you know, it's like they've played that card a little too much, right? If, if Jewish people can be anti-Semites, if... Barack Obama is an anti-Semite. I mean, come on, you know. I, it indeed, and I'll say uh, we, we could we could wrap this part of it by saying I guess um, it does feel hollow now. I feel like they played that card so much in the last eight weeks or eight months, however long this recent spat in the Middle East has gone on, which to me honestly feels like a distraction. I know it's I know it's real, but it's also like not real, right? Um, they have driven the concept of anti semi into the ground uh i think they in some ways i feel like it's uh represents part of the regime and i'm not speaking specifically of jews here because i think again what whatever whatever this conspiracy kind of idea of a jew is i think that's it's, it's misnamed right it's misapplied i don't think that's the right term to apply to a shadowy cabal i think there would be definitely jews amongst a shadowy global cabal if there were to be one you know but i think it's um it's uh not the right thing to say that it's specifically jews but whoever is in that cabal seems to i feel like use the idea of jews and the idea of anti-semitism and the idea of uh, zionism as a really powerful weapon um in my view you know i feel like it's it's all feels like a, a smokescreen and like uh, just distortion at the end of the day it's obviously connected to real values it's obviously connected to real history and, and real feelings but it's all been weaponized to the point of, of meaninglessness you know yeah, it has been. And I, I just think it's kind of like, you know, I mean, the the a lot of these critiques, like that book, The Invention of a Jewish People, uh, by that uh, Sand guy, and Finkelstein and many others, I mean, a lot of what these, I mean, Jewish intellectuals who are critiquing Zionism or whatever are doing is really just applying the same kind of leftist deconstructionist sort of techniques to that movement, right? It's the same deconstructionist techniques that were applied to any number of sort mm -hmm. of, you know, traditional Western whatever stuff, you know, mm -hmm. nationalism and patriarchy and so forth. Um, so yeah, it's like really anything can be subjected to these critical tools, right? Um, and it's like, and I'm not saying they're good or bad, but there's, I don't see why the, their application should be limited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well said. Um, what do you think of like 
have you seen like just the embrace of like nazism all of a sudden like radical leftists like insane people uh i've noticed a, a recent like, a lot of it's fake but there are like it does seem like the left all of a sudden does not care about literal nazis anymore they are still worried about like a, a crypto fascist uh, like you and me or um, the rising threat of trump who is this like phantom threat who's gonna do all these bad things that are actually happening you know right now uh, mm-hmm. but isn't it kind of funny to see like this like they're gonna ruin it too nazis are gonna be so mad because they're gonna ruin Hitler for everyone. Yeah, it's really weird, isn't it? I mean, they, you know, the, I mean, they're like funding essentially those basically Nazis, the Azovs or whatever in Ukraine. Right, right, right. I mean, mm-hmm. Right, it, you know. So, um, I, mean, I just think it goes back to how like none of this stuff really makes that much sense anymore. It's just the mm-hmm. the narrative has just broken apart. I think people can see how. These terms, they just don't have a lot of relevance. There, there aren't Nazis anymore. Like Nazis, that was a specific movement in a specific time, mm-hmm. and they're all gone. You know, like yeah, there's ironic Hitler posting and you know whatever, but its concrete historical manifestation of national socialism does not exist in any meaningful organized way, even in an unorganized way. Mm-hmm. It, it, and um, so. Yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of simulation and appearances and, you know, the the left loves to get very worked up about it and loves to just, you know, apply those labels, as you've said, as a cudgel, try to discipline people, basically, um, you know, into various inane projects that they have. Mm. Nazis, Nazis are dead. Punk is dead. Everything is dead. It's all like fake <laughs> electro clash theater kid, like just pantomime uh, bullshit. <laughs> Endlessly, it seems like. Or, or you can just choose to not care or to to exit. I guess. Can I ask you a couple of rapid fire questions uh, before sure. I let you go? Um, I actually, I just, I pulled a couple of your tweets. I'm, let me just get my my files here. They're all mixed up. Actually, one question I have, first of all, but you're famously uh, a, a man of high taste, really, I would say. A man of culture. You, you don't just post politics. In fact, you don't really post politics. I would say you post more uh cultural commentary, uh, civilizational observations, perhaps. Um, but you love photography. My question uh, for you is what about, what is it about photography that you get that you can't get from anything else? Well, I, what I like about photography, it's kind of, I like, it's very spontaneous. And if you've ever gone out with a camera, particularly a film camera and done it, you kind of get a feel for that. But unlike a painting or something, a photograph is just a single split second. And I think there's just a magic sometimes in how all the elements c- come together, right? In this just like instant, which is captured. Mm, mm, brilliant. Oh, I love that. Um, you once wrote uh, the best health advice I've ever received was from a sub 100 follower and non-Peter account in the replies of a Landshark tweet 
Love that. Uh, do you do you recall the health advice and do you care to repeat it? The advice, um, the advice was actually from an account who I would recommend following. The account is Punished Wave, at Punished Wave. And the advice was that if you have high cholesterol, it's very, that is very likely a symptom of um, low thyroid, a bad thyroid function, hmm. and should be basically addressed along those routes rather than the typical, you know, mainstream medical advice. Shout out punished way. I, I will follow. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, okay, we've got just a couple more. I promise. Wait, my, you said my ancestral land parking space is being occupied by another vehicle. This crime will not go unpunished. Uh, did you seek vengeance? Uh, was, was justice, was justice served? <laughs> Unfortunately, justice was not served. And not only was it not served, I, in fact, happened to me again by the same person. Um, so, yeah, I, I cocked, unfortunately, and, you know, the crime was repeated. And here we are. <laughs> that is, uh, we will get, we will seek vengeance. Don't worry. I've, I've got, I know some people. We'll get some wrath going. Uh, wait, uh, I was going to read, you had a really popular tweet uh, recently or a pretty famous tweet about Indians. I'm not going to actually read it because I, I I don't, I can't go up against Indians for a third or fourth or fifth episode in a row. So we're going to skip that one. You're welcome, Indians <laughs> listeners. Um, but I do want to ask, you wrote about your aunt who's like a professional psychic. Uh, what's, did, did she, has she ever predicted something for you that came true? No. <sighs> But she she still gets hired. Interesting. Okay. Uh, one more question. Um, who will die first, uh, Joe Biden or Liver King? I, I I contend, and I people have I have gotten mixed feedback on this. But I don't. I think Biden is already dead. So I'm going to say Biden because he. I think he is dead, and that there's just a bunch of imposter, you know, body doubles and actors running around. I think Liver King may not make it much longer, but I think he did beat Biden. <laughs> You're probably, I think that's fair. I think Liver King, until there's a cure for like lion feline AIDS or whatever he has, he kind of looks Asian lately. I don't know, but I'm praying for Liver King. We don't, we don't want him dead, of course. Uh, no, until, not at all. Until there's a cure. Um, Fitz, thank you so much again for uh, joining me. This is, I think, hopefully uh, an enlightening conversation for people to listen to. I, I really appreciate it myself. Um, where can people find you? What should people know about you? What are your final thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, my Twitter is, um, fitness feelings with a Z. Um, and I, yeah, thank, thank you for having me. It was a really interesting discussion. I don't, I don't, I think, um, it's a complicated topic, you know, and we, we kind of did, we, we kind of tackled parts of it. And, um, I, I thought it was very, thought it was very interesting. Very, I, I enjoyed your insights. Thank you. I, I appreciate you always. You Fitz people should know is insanely brilliant. I've heard him just go off the cuff in our book club before where he just, uh, he's he's incredible. What's what's the sub stack again? Uh, it is uh, Reason and Sanity. We will uh, drop all that in the show notes. Uh, thanks again, Fitz. We will see you next time. Bye.